Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Thank you so much uh, for this community, the church that you have brought us into, God. People that we can journey through life together with, Lord. That we don't have to go through uh, these things alone, God. But you have placed us within a community where we can encourage one another, God. And challenge one another and love one another, Lord. God, thank you for your word which we turn to today. Thank you for the book of Daniel and just how applicable it is to our life and to our situation, God. Help us to see Uh, the precious truths held within this book, Lord, this semester, and help us, God, to apply it to our life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I had just prayed, uh, today we are starting our fall series in the book of Daniel. And before we get into it, I want to help you understand the historical context of Daniel, where Daniel fits in the great story of God's redemption. So I have a timeline for you today, and you can see it there in your bulletin. You can try to fill it in as we go if you want. But we're going to start all the way back in 2100 BC. And so in 2100 BC, God calls Abraham and gives him three promises. I have my kids memorize these three promises because it's a framework for reading uh, really the the rest of scripture. God promises Abraham that he will, uh, a presence, a people, and a property. God promises his special presence to Abraham and to his descendants. He promises that from Abraham and his wife, Sarah, who is elderly and barren, that from them will come a great nation of people. And he promises them a property, a promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. In 1800 BC, the children of Abraham, the 12 tribes of Israel, moved to Egypt. The reason why they do this is because there is a famine in the promised land, and there's and one of the sons, Joseph, is now uh, second in charge in Egypt, which is the most prosperous country in the world. And so they move down to Egypt, and they are put in a very fertile place uh, in Egypt, where they where they multiply greatly, and they become a great nation, just as God had promised. Now, after hundreds of years pass, the people of Egypt forget about Joseph and what a blessing he was to Egypt, and they are afraid of this growing nation, Israel, and so they enslave them and they put them in bondage. Well, then in 1446 BC, there is an exodus from Egypt. God delivers them out of bondage, out of slavery, and bring, to bring them back to the promised land. As they are going towards the promised land, uh, they decide to chase after other gods, and so they end up wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And during that 40 years, God says something to them that is very important for us understanding the book of Daniel. God warns them. He says, if you will not listen to me, if you will walk contrary to me, in other words, if you go and you worship other gods, he says, I will discipline you. 
And he tells them how he will discipline them. He says in Leviticus 31, 26, 31, he says, And I will lay your cities waste and will make your sanctuaries desolate. And I will not smell your pleasing aromas. And I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. And then hear this. And I will scatter you among the nations. God warns them of this before they even enter the promised land, before they have any cities, before they have a temple, before they have a sanctuary to make sacrifices. And so God makes this, gives this warning to them because God is like a good husband who is jealous for his wife and will not share her with another man. God does not want to share his people with other gods. And so he says, stay faithful to me, stay dedicated to me, follow me. And if you do not, I will bring discipline upon you. I will scatter you among the nations, okay? So that happens in 1446 BC. Then we get to 1050 BC, and there is an establishment of a human kingdom, uh, of a human king within Israel. And this is actually an act of rebellion against God. The people of God say, we want a king like all the other nations. We want a visible king, a tall king, an attractive king. God as our invisible king is not enough. And so God says, if that's what you want, that's what I will give you. And so he gives them King Saul. Uh, who, who really plummets spiritually and leads Israel into some very dark places. Uh, Saul is replaced by David, who was a big sinner, but was also a bigger repenter. And David was a man after God's own heart. After David came uh, his son Solomon. Solomon was extremely wise, but was also uh, had a wandering eye. And he married uh, many women from many different nations who had many different gods. And because of that intermarriage, he started worshiping those other gods. And because of that, uh, after, after Solomon, the kingdom of Israel was divided in two. And this is where it gets a little bit confusing if you're not confused yet. As Israel is divided in two, there is a northern kingdom, and that is also called Israel. And then there is a southern kingdom, which is called Judah. And so in 930 BC, there is the division of the kingdom. And so for hundreds of years, the, the northern kingdom uh, spiritually just commits adultery against God. They whore after other gods. They decline uh, just a straight downward spiral. There's one blip of repentance, but other than that, they're going straight downhill. They're running away from God. They're worshiping other gods, building altars and temples to other gods. And so for hundreds, hundreds, hundreds of years, God is warning them. He is pleading with them through his prophets, return to me, return to me, return to me. But they refuse to do so. And so after hundreds of years, God brings his discipline upon them. In 722 BC, the northern kingdom of Israel is invaded by the Assyrians and the people are conquered and they are forced to intermarry with the foreigners and they are dispersed throughout the Assyrian empire. Now, the southern kingdom does a little bit better than the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom still has a lot of struggles, but there are seasons of repentance and faithfulness, a rediscovering of God's word, God's law, and following that. Uh, but eventually, it continues to decline. And so God also sends prophets to the southern kingdom of Judah and says, repent, return to me. I love you. I am your one true God. I am the God who rescued you and delivered you. And so don't chase after these false gods. Come back to me. 
But after hundreds of years of warning and after hundreds of years of denial and rebellion, God finally sends discipline upon the southern kingdom in the form of the Babylonian Empire. And so in 606 BC, Babylon, the Babylon Empire besieges the southern kingdom of Judah. And inside Judah is the city of Jerusalem. Now the book of Daniel starts in about 605 BC, okay? And so this is right after Babylon has, has conquered uh, Judah. Uh, they take some of their key leaders, which includes Daniel and some of his friends that we'll read about. And what they do is they export them back to Babylon. And Daniel will be writing from exile in Babylon, okay? Now, a couple other important dates is that Babylon actually uh, invades Judah again in 597 BC. But then in 586, which is the most memorable, they really destroy Judah. Uh, they come in and they destroy the city of Jerusalem. They destroy the temple of God. And so that's the climate that we're in. The Daniel is writing this book. He's, he's not just writing this book. He's living out this book in Babylon in exile. So I have a map for you here just to kind of show you uh, where they are. So here they were in Jerusalem. This is the region of Judah. And they're conquered by the Babylonians and they are deported uh, all the way over here in Babylon, okay? And if you want to think of a modern-day equivalent, you could think of it like the Trail of Tears, uh, even in our own history. They, they walked about 500 miles. They were a broken people. They were defeated people. They were a humbled people, and they were taken into a foreign country with a foreign language and foreign values and foreign gods. And so here Daniel is uh, in this foreign country, and he writes this book for us. So if you would open up to Daniel chapter 1, uh, it's page 737 on the red Bible uh, in the seat in front of you, page 875 in the large print blue Bible, and page 930 in the children's Bible. If you have your own Bible and you have trouble finding it, it's about three-fourths of the way through through the Bible um, before Hosea and after Ezekiel. Now, as we go through the book of Daniel, as we do in a lot of Old Testament passages, it's, it's a narrative passage, which means it's in story format, and it's a longer passage. And so I'm going to read a little bit and preach a bit, little bit, read a little bit and preach a little bit. Uh, otherwise, it would just simply take too long. So I want to start by just simply looking at the first two verses of Daniel chapter 1. Daniel 1 verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the place of God, of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Again, when Nebuchadnezzar conquered uh, Judah and Jerusalem, he exported their greatest possessions. He exported some of the vessels of the temple and brought them to his own uh, temple of his own God. And one of the reasons why they did this was to say, look, our God is bigger than your God, which we will find out is not true. Uh, but they also exported the finest people, the leaders of the community, again, Daniel and his friends, and brought them back to Babylon. And so here Daniel and his friends are again, and they are the people of God who have just been devastated by war. They have been tortured. Some say that they were actually uh, uh, brought in exile with fish hooks in their mouths, dragging them all the way to Babylon. I don't know if it's true, but it was not a, it was, it was a devastating event for them. 
And here they are in this foreign land with foreign gods and foreign customs and foreign values and foreign language. And, and as we look at this book of Daniel, we may wonder, what does this have to do with us? In Green Bay, Wisconsin, 2,500 years later, I mean, really, what would the book of Daniel have to do with you and with me? Well, if you're a Christian, it has a lot to do with you. In Jesus' high priestly prayer, he prays this. He says, they, talking about his people, he says, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Philippians 3 says this to the church, to those who trust in Christ. It says, for our citizenship is in heaven above. 1 Peter 2 says, beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. People of God, like Daniel, we too live in exile. As we read last week, heaven is our home. But here on earth, we as the people of God live in a foreign land with foreign gods and foreign customs and foreign values and yes, even a foreign language. There are many ways I could illustrate this. Just a couple that come to mind off the top of my head is whenever, whenever we sign up for a sports team, my kids, and I, maybe I've shared this with you before, but we always have a conversation with the coach and we say, hey, listen, Sunday mornings, our kids won't be playing because our priority is to come and to worship God. And, and they've always been respectful of that, but, but we live in a foreign culture and people say, oh, they do that because the, he's a pastor. It's like, no, we do it because we're Christians and we worship a God greater than children's sports. We have a God that we are more devoted to and we come to worship him every Sunday morning. That's what God calls us to do. And so that's what we do. You know, there are, there are people in our neighborhood that we have to be careful with our kids around because they have different values. They use different language that is not appropriate for them. They let them watch certain shows that we don't think are good for our kids. And so we are a peculiar people. We are supposed to be a peculiar people. Matter of fact, if you are not a peculiar person, if you don't understand, if you don't see yourself as an exile in this world, it's probably because you belong to the world. If you don't have different customs in the world. See, God says, my ways, God's ways are not man's ways. And so if you live according to the ways of men, ways, according to the ways of the world, if you don't understand yourself as an exile, it may be because you're not in exile. Or because you're not living consistent with what God says in his word. And, and so this is, this today, is a, it's a little bit of an insider conversation. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we're so glad you're here. But this is a little bit of a conversation amongst the exiles, amongst those whose heaven is our home and we have been placed here in exile upon this earth. And the real, the question that we want to ask today as we look at Daniel chapter 1 is how Shall we faithfully live here as exiles on this earth? How do we faithfully live as exiles here in Green Bay? That's, that's the question that we want to answer today, okay? And the first thing we see from the book of Daniel is that as exiles, we must recognize the conforming culture in exile. Look at verse 3 with me. It says, Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, 
of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Notice here the king, Nebuchadnezzar, is seeking to assimilate the exiles into Babylon. And he does this through attempting to brainwash them with the literature of their, of their nation, which most certainly does not elevate the Lord God. And he lures them towards this by giving them the very best food and the very best drink of the kingdom. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is trying to conform them to the world of Babylon, trying to make them feel at home in Babylon, trying to blot out their remembrances of the promised land and convince them that their new home, their better home, their greater home is in Babylon. And he does this through, through educating them for three years in the systems of Babylon. Now, just a side note here, and I think I'll probably ruffle some feathers, and that's okay. Some Christians use this text to argue that we must not send our Christian children to non-Christians schools. They will say, see, look, education is the means by which Babylon is seeking to brainwash our kids. But what brothers and sisters are failing to remember is that, number one, Daniel received that education. He could have denied it. We know Daniel denied other things throughout the book of Daniel, didn't he? Even at the threat of his own life, but he received it. The second thing that I think people forget is the rest of the story. Daniel was placed in this, in this educational system in Babylon, and while they, could not, while they could take Daniel out of Israel, they could not take the Israel out of Daniel. God reigns in Babylon. God reigns in every place, in every location. And what we see is because Daniel is in this community, because he's going through this system, not, the system does not transform Daniel, but Daniel transforms the system. He actually transforms the king. 1 John 4, 4 says, Greater is he who is inside of you than he who is in the world. Now, I realize that we have to be careful with what we expose our children to. I realize that sometimes we have to say enough is enough. There are some times where we cannot participate without violating our obedience to God and to his word. But what I find so heartbreaking is that so many times people live out their faith in fear, believing that our God is so small, that he is so relegated to such a small section of the world. They forget that our God reigns everywhere. This is very personal to me and important to me because if, if, all, if all the Christian parents pulled their kids out of school I would not be a Christian today. I mean, God may have used other means, but this is how God brought me to faith in Christ. Now, I'm not saying homeschooling is bad. I'm not saying Christian education is bad. As many of you know, we homeschool our kids, and I believe it's a Christian education. But what I am saying is to completely remove our children from non-Christian relationships and influences is typically found by people who have a small God theology, people who think that our God is impotent and our God does not reign over all things and in all things. And so the book of Daniel tells us that the exact opposite is true, that God reigns over everything, even over the empire of Babylon. 
And God uses them in Babylon, in exile, to transform the culture that is around them. Verse 6 continues and says, Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribes of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. The names that these men originally had were, were godly names. Daniel, for example, the last name of Daniel, which is a name I'm particularly fond of, by the way. But the, the end of Daniel is the word El, which means God. And, and the first part means judge. And so Daniel means God is my judge, okay? And then you have Mishael, which again ends with El, which means God. And Mishael means who is like our God, Okay. And then you have Azariah, which means Jehovah is my helper. These very names were to remind these men of to whom they belong and to whom they worship. But now Babylon has removed their names, seeking to remove their identity in God. And they are given names that referred to the false gods of Babylon. As if to say, these are now your gods and this is now your identity Now, what we find out throughout this book is that, again, while Babylon may change their names, they could not change their hearts, and they could not change their God, because our God reigns over all and in all. You know, I grew up the youngest of five kids, and so uh, I got a lot of hand-me-downs, right? And in high school, I don't understand why, why my parents do this, um, but, but even when I did get new clothes, it wasn't the nicest new clothes. It wasn't the expensive name brand because my parents were trying to put five kids through college or help them through college, and so they were making appropriate cuts in order to do that. But as a result, I didn't wear the coolest clothing to school, right? And, and so kids in junior high, which can be vicious, would start to give me a nickname. They started calling me Hoopty, okay, Hoopty. Uh, and, and I laughed it off and I embraced it because really what else can I do? But I hated the name. I hated the name Hoopty, but that's what they called me. That's how they defined me, right? Now, now what's cool is that later that year, I, I actually went to Hawaii uh, in December, and I came back really tan for like two months. For two months, I was really cool, and all the girls liked me. But when the tan wore off, I was Hoopty again, right? I was Hoopty. This is how the world labeled me, right? How does the world label you? Do they call you weird? Do they call you dorky? Do they call you uncool, unathletic, uncoordinated, old school, unworthy of their attention? Maybe they say you're an alcoholic or an adulterer or a hoarder. Christian, don't let this conforming culture fool you. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. You are first and foremost a Christian. Yes, you may be a Christian that struggles with alcoholism. Yes, you may be a Christian who struggles with hoarding. Yes, you may be a Christian who struggles with this thing or that thing. But first and foremost, you are a Christian. You are a precious, precious child of the living God. You are his beautiful bride. You are his cherished possession. And so how shall we live in exile, recognizing the conforming culture in exile? And use God's word to remind us of who we are and how we are to live as his people. The second thing we see is that we are to live with fearful faithfulness in exile. Look at verse 8 with me. 
But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Now, commentators do not agree on why this food would defile Daniel. Some of them believe that it would defile Daniel because it was not properly drained of its blood as God had commanded in the Old Testament. Some of them believe because this food would have first been sacrificed to idols and then given to them for food, which again, would have been a no-no for Daniel to do. Some of them simply believed that Daniel didn't want to take it because he knew that the purpose of it was to woo him away from his nation and from his God. And so he said, I don't want it because it will defile me. But whatever the reason is, Daniel asked the eunuch if he can abstain from that and stick to a diet of vegetables and water. Verse 9, And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youth who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. You know, it's so interesting here because the eunuch seems to really like Daniel. It says in verse 9 that God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the eunuch, and yet the eunuch is afraid. The eunuch is afraid of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, He says there in verse 10, I fear my Lord, the king. And then later on he said, so you would endanger my head before the king, right? Like like if I feed you only vegetables and water and you are skinny and your bones are showing and you don't look any good, the king's going to cut off my head. He's afraid. And so he says, I'm not so sure I want to do this, Daniel. I like you and all. I appreciate you. I see you're a a great guy, but, but I don't know if I want to do this. And so Daniel understands, and Daniel comes back at him, and he says, let's just do it for 10 days and see what happens. And we'll read about that in a little bit. But in this passage, what we see is that fear is a motivating factor, both for the eunuch and for Daniel, First, for the eunuch, the fear, again, is of man. He's afraid of Nebuchadnezzar and what he will do to him. But for Daniel, his motivation towards obedience is fear of the Lord. He just saw what the Lord had done to Judah to discipline his people. And Daniel knows the Lord will do it again. You see, while the eunuch fears his human Lord, Daniel fears Yahweh Lord, the Lord God. If you ever have a chance, and maybe this might be something you want to do this afternoon, do a word search in the Bible on the word fear. It's a very fascinating word search. And now that we have Google and all those things, it's very easy to do. But, but what you'll find are passages like this in Genesis 15.1 where God says, Fear not, fear not, Abraham. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Or Exodus 14.13, Moses said to the people, Fear not. Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. And so there's this, there's this theme throughout scripture, fear not. Do not fear your situation. Do not fear your human en- enemies. But then it also says this, Deuteronomy 6.2, fear the Lord your God, you and your sons and your sons' sons, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments. Deuteronomy 6.13, it is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve. Psalm 34.9, oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. Psalm 86, 11. Teach me your ways, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. And so on one hand, God says you need not fear man. You need not fear your situation, but you must fear God. Now there is a big difference between the eunuch's fear 
in Daniel's fear, a, a massive difference. The eunuch is afraid of a, of, a, of, a, uh, of a twisted dictator who is going to just cut off his head because he cares nothing about this guy, right? But Daniel's fear of the Lord is because he knows that the Lord is attentive, that the Lord is a father who cares for him, who will discipline him for his own good if he decides to go his own way into self-destructive sin. Those are two completely different motivations for fear. And because Daniel feared the Lord, he received the blessing of the Lord. Look at verse 11. It says, Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter, that's a good fatter, all right, and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Daniel feared God more than man, and he was blessed as a result of it. We must fear God, not only because God is the ultimate authority, not only because we are his children and he will discipline us, but because his law is perfect and right and good, and it is a blessing to us. Now, it doesn't mean that if we obey God that we will have a perfect body or lots of money or more days in this world. But what it does mean is that you will be blessed with the greatest blessing of all, which is more intimacy with your creator. A couple of weeks ago, my wife uh, posted a picture on Facebook and she sent me a picture of it. And what she had found in one of our children's closets was this huge bowl of cooked ramen noodles. I mean, it was like a popcorn bowl full of cooked ramen noodles. And our child was hiding it in the closet because they were afraid of us. Because they knew that, that if we asked them if they could have 10 ramen noodle packets, uh, if they, would, they know that we would say no. And so they hid it from us. Our children hide other things from us, like sneaking to go play electronics and things like that. I hid things from my parents. And the reason why we hide things is because we are afraid right? We're afraid of our parents in a healthy way, right? We're not afraid in a eunuch type of way where we're afraid that our parents are going to cut off our head or that they're going to kick us out of the house, but we're afraid because we know that our parents love us and care for us and they will discipline us for our good, right? For our good. And so we have a healthy fear of our parents in the same way what we see what helps Daniel to stay faithful in the midst of exile, is that he fears a heavenly father that loves him and cares for him and will discipline him for his good. And so in this passage, we are challenged to fear God and not men, to live for him and not for others, to obey him and not the pressures of the world around us. And so how shall we live in exile, recognize the conforming culture in exile, live with fearful faithfulness in exile? And finally, utilize God's gifts in exile. Look at verse 17 with me. He says, as for these for use, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. 
And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Now, why is it that these foreigners, who, who really uh, Babylon is introducing them to their second language, are found 10 times smarter than the wisest people in, in the empire of Babylon? Well, there's many reasons that we see here. First and foremost, it is God. Verse 17 says, and as for these youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and Wisdom, And so what we know without a doubt is that this wisdom comes from God because of what comes next. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. This isn't something you can train yourself to do. This is something that God gives to us. So this reality that God gives us our wisdom, our insight, our skill sets should keep us from being arrogant in any way, shape, or form, right? Like you might be a really good auto mechanic. It may come very simply to you. And yet you look at me and I'm like, how do I change my oil? And you're tempted to think, what an idiot, right? And like, I will be patient with this man. I will be gracious to this man. But there's, there, there, there's a temptation to be arrogant. If, you're, if you know a lot of theology, there's a temptation to be arrogant towards other people. Whatever you are very knowledgeable and wise, there's a temptation towards arrogance. And yet here we are told that we have no right to be arrogant because all of it is a gift from God. And so they're smarter because of God, but they're also smarter because they fostered that wisdom and that knowledge. Verse 18 says, at the end of the time, what was the time? The time was the three years that they were put and the education of Babylon, in which they worked hard to cultivate that gift that God had given to them. Again, so we aren't lazy in what God shares with us. We don't say, okay, I don't need to do school. I don't need to do homework because God will teach me whatever I need to know. We need to work hard to develop that wisdom that God has given to us by his grace. And I think the third reason why Daniel and the other boys were so much smarter than the rest is because they filtered everything through God's word. These were godly men who loved the Lord. There's a good chance they had the first five books of the Bible memorized. That was common in those days. And so what they would have done in loving and fearing the Lord is in one hand, they would have had their, their studies of Babylon, their textbooks. And in the other hand, they would have had their Bible. And they would have said, okay, I'm learning this, but how does it compare to this? And this Bible has authority over, over the, the books of Babylon and so what am I learning from this? And they filtered everything through God's word. And because of that, they were not only limited to worldly wisdom, but they actually had divine wisdom, which made them 10 times smarter than anyone else who was there. I remember I became a Christian right after high school. And as I went into college, I went into a fraternity house, a very non-Christian fraternity house, although many thought they were Christians. But anyway, that's another story. Um, but, but the first year I was in pledgeship, and then the second year I became a, a a brother, they call it, a member of the training house, and I was a part of their chapter meetings. And I remember being a part of the discussion and just kind of speaking into the things that I was hearing. And one of the people came out afterwards, one of their brothers, and he said, man, what you said was really smart. It was really wise. It was really sharp, which is the first time I'd ever been accused of something like that. And, and, and they said, they're like, where did you learn that stuff? I said, well, I started reading the Bible. And what I just shared were things that I learned from the Bible. You see, God's word... I, can we just say, if there is a God, can we just agree that he's probably smarter than us? <laughs> that he's probably wiser than us? And, and if the Bible is God's word, is it not the wisest thing that we could possibly study? 
And so they were found 10 times wiser. Now, what did they do with this wisdom? Did they conceal it to themselves? Did they recede into caves? What did they do? What should we do with our gifts? Well, I actually want to point you to Jeremiah 29. And I believe it's up here on the screen, verse 4 through 7. Jeremiah 29. says, and, and just so you know, context, Jeremiah was a contemporary of Daniel. Uh, he was still in, in Judah and Jerusalem. He was there until the later exile in 586. Uh, but this is what Jeremiah says about how we should go into exile, okay? He says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. And then listen very closely to this last part. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. And so what God is teaching in this passage, what Jeremiah is telling us is however God has blessed you, however God has gifted you, that you are called to use it for the welfare of the city that you are now in. We need Christians gifted by God in teaching to be teachers in non-Christian schools. We need Christians gifted in wisdom to be politicians in a non-Christian government. We Christians gifted by God in leadership to be bosses in non-Christian workplaces. We need Christians gifted in handiwork to be floormen in non-Christian businesses. We need Christians gifted in mentorship to be coaches on non-Christian teams. We need Christians gifted in encouragement to be instructors in non-Christian gyms. We need Christians to be a blessing to this community, to seek the welfare of this community through the blessings of the gifts that God has given to us. And so how, how has God gifted you? What comes easy to you that is hard to others? Are you using those gifts for the welfare of the city that you have been exiled to? Let me end with this. I'm coaching my son's junior peewee football team. Uh, next son now, I'm on to Caleb. And at the beginning of the year, what I do is I send an email out to the parents uh, because you have to figure out what positions these kids play, and it's really hard to do. And so I will send out an email, and I'll say, hey, uh, would you let me know, number one, what, what experience does your child have playing tackle football? Number two, what position did they play last year, uh, and if they liked it or didn't like it? And number three, what position would they like to try out, okay? So I send this email out to about 20 parents. 16 of them respond. 13 of the children want to play quarterback or running back, Okay. 13 of them want to play quarterback or running back, which means only three people want to block for them, which if you know anything about football, it doesn't work very well that way, right? It's actually the exact opposite, the exact opposite of that. And so, so we have these kids the, the first few weeks and we have to place them in certain positions. And to be honest, a lot of kids are in positions they don't want to be in. They don't want to be the left tackle. They don't want to be the right guard. They don't want to do that. They want to carry the ball. And so we have to coach them and teach them that their position is very, very important for the success of the team. They need to play their position well because if you don't block, we don't go anywhere. I actually have a saying, I say, I say blocking are like wheels on the bus, right? If we have no wheels, where does the bus go? Nowhere, right? You have to do your job well. Whatever position we put you in, what we think is best for the team. Now, your position might change, but that's the position you're at right now, and you need to do it very well. I bring that up because right now, you may be in a position in your life that you do not want to be at. 
Maybe it be in your workplace, maybe it be in your neighborhood, maybe it be in your marriage, maybe it be in your extended family. You don't want to be in that position. And one of the most important things of Daniel chapter one, which I have not told you yet, which has been painful not to tell you yet, is that your exile is no mistake. Look with me at verses one and two. It says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So who, who exiled Israel, right? Nebuchadnezzar did, right? Keep reading. Verse two, and the Lord, this is Daniel writing, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands. Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the world, was merely an instrument in the hand of God to send his people into exile exactly where he wanted them to be. Jeremiah 29, the passage that I just read to you. Again, it's painful not to point it out when I read through it the first time, but it says this, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles, and this is the Lord saying, whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And then verse 7, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for its welfare, you will find your welfare. Jesus in the high priestly prayer says, I do not ask that you take them out of this world, but that you keep them from the evil world. And so what Jesus is praying and what Daniel is telling us, what Jeremiah is telling us, is that wherever you are exiled to, whether it be the workplace you're at, the neighborhood you're at, the community you're in, the friendships that you have, that is the place that God has exiled to you, you to. He has put you in that position to live faithfully for God, to be lights in this world, to be a blessing to this community. Now, if that is hard for you to believe, all you have to do is look to Jesus. Jesus was in heaven, paradise above, and he was exiled into this broken world, and he was sent to the cross to bear the wrath of God. Do you think that is a position that he was longing for? And yet he endured that position with faithfulness for the glory of God and for our salvation. And so wherever God has called you, whatever position you are in, even if you do not want to be there, know that God has exiled you there for his great purposes, to be faithful witnesses, to transform the city and the culture that we live in for the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for the book of Daniel. It is so timely and so helpful to make us realize, God, that, that where we are is no mistake. You may move us to other positions in our life, but right now we are where we are because you have placed us here. Help us, Lord, to identify how culture may, may try to conform us to their views, Lord. I mean, it's in every magazine rack that we pass by, God. Help us to know your word and how you are good, Lord. Help us to remember, God that we are exiles for you, that, that we need to fear you and not men, God, to live obedient to you because you want our best, because you are a dad who loves us and cares for us and will discipline us because you want us to stop doing self-destructive things, Lord. Grant us, God, by your, by your spirit to utilize our God-given gifts in exile for the sake of the city that you have placed us in, that we may be a blessing to this community so that if the church perished, the community would say, oh, we miss the church. We miss the people. They were such a blessing to us. God, grant us courage. Grant us faith. Help us to remember that you reign in all things and over all things. And that wherever we go, we do not go alone. But we go there because you have placed us there and we go there with you, our reigning God. Lord, as we turn to your table, we are reminded that you will put us in positions that are painful. But that, that pain, 
has purpose. As we turn to the table, we're reminded of the position of Christ who died on the cross for us, who took on our sin, who took on our shame, who took on your wrath on our behalf, that we could experience the glory of home one day in heaven. Lord, as we turn to the table, may it nourish us as we seek, Lord, to live faithfully here in exile in this world that you have called us to. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.